metasutta, Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest things that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be happy. Whatever living beings they may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Um, by mentioning a few things before we do the meditation. So, um, sometimes in life we have difficulties. And even though we have difficulties, we have to learn to have patience in those difficulties. And the tendency of the mind is always to want everything to be good all the time. So we expect the world to change, so we become at ease. But what we need to do is build the causes up in our own heart to become at ease. And it's a difficult thing to do, and so this is why we have the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is the medicine of the Buddha. And the world is always going one way, material things, bodies, form is always going one way. And we attach to these things, and so they produce suffering. So no matter what happiness we get from the world, it just comes back and bites us. The more, hold, the more we touch on, the more we latch on, the more we get bitten by that poisonous snake of our own attachment. And so we just have to see that in the end, 
this process of meditation, this process of precepts and generosity, giving up to the practice, this is the medicine that allows us to overcome difficulty. That no matter what we face in life, then we can have patience. Because the, in one of the Jatakas of Lord Buddha, he had his nose chopped off, and the execute, and then the king said, "Is your how's your patience now?" And he says, "My patience isn't in my nose." And he was beaten up, and his patience isn't in my skin. And he had his limbs chopped off. Patience isn't in my limbs. And so the idea that this patience goes so deep that even the body, when it's affected, if it goes in deep enough, that's the power of the mind over these things. That the mind is just the world. I mean, the body is just the world. The mind is the superior thing. The mind is the thing that can be trained. And to train isn't easy. And this is why Lord Buddha set up the Sangha the way that he set it up, because having renunciance in the world, that's the supreme place to be able to practice. But it's not the only place. If, if lay people didn't practice as well, then there wouldn't be a Sangha. Because nobody would be supported. There would be no generosity in the world. There would be no bhavana in the world. So the two go together. But the renunciants, if, if there weren't a renunciants, there would be no bodhisattvas. There would be no pacheka buddhas. So the symbol of a renunciant is the symbol of practice. It's the symbol that the mind is superior to the body, that the mind leads to the deathless. So we have this mutual understanding that it's difficult for householders in the world to know who is an arahant, to know that renunciation is good. Because even Lord Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva in his final life, his mind didn't, as a prince, his prince Siddhartha Gautama, his mind didn't lead towards renunciation. It says so in the suttas. And so if his mind didn't lead towards renunciation, with, when on the verge of being a Buddha, <laughs> Now, what, what hope does a standard householder have? Meaning that we have to incline our mind. He knew it was good, but his mind didn't lead towards it. So, if, if we want to take meditation or bhavana or the six recollections, even the six recollections that I often talk about, they're enough to realize nirvana. They're not small things. And, and so, and what is nirvana? Nirvana is the highest peace. Like a, a teaching that Stephen translated not too long ago for me. Lumpote has Nibbana, basically meditating on Nibbana as meditation on peace. This idea of focusing on peace as your meditation object is focusing on Nibbana, because that's the highest peace. And so we have this idea that giving up to peace, giving up to the Dhamma, giving up to the Buddha, this is making the island in the heart. This is the refuge in the heart. As the Buddha said that about making, a, making an island, making a refuge in our own heart. So this is what it means to develop peace. But it doesn't matter if our nose gets chopped off, or our limbs get chopped off. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. That we have the capability of developing peace in our own hearts. That was the preamble for our meditation. I'll give a guide of meditation for those who wish and those who wish to just meditate and ignore me totally, please go ahead. Peace is in the heart, so that's the important thing. We'll start by finding a comfortable position. Bring up the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha or, or a faith in our meditation object whatever it is that makes us come here to practice. We're here to grow as good beings and to grow in the way of Dharma. And like the great Ajahns, the great Kruba Ajahns, the great teachers, the great forest masters, the only way they ever really got somewhere was to give their life for the practice. We have to see that these things are serious. The things in the world are temporary. 
But to develop something that's worthwhile is difficult to find. Just become aware of our bodily posture. Just see the body is like this, the posture is like this, the tension is like this. We see how we can relax the body, the various parts, the limbs, the torso, the legs, the waist, the neck, the face. Just become aware of the body and bring it into a space of neutrality, a place of ease. See if we can bring a sense of tranquility to the body tranquilizing the desire to move the body, putting down, cooling off from all kinds of action. Everybody still finds it a little bit agitated or tired or something. Maybe take a few deep breaths, fill up the lungs and empty them. Try and clean the mind. That's a good thing to do. Like Pumpocha said, any time you get stuck in meditation, just take a few deep breaths and start again. body now, relax, just sweep through the body one more time, relax the face and the eyes, relax the eyes deeply, relax the whole of the head, the neck, the shoulders, upper arms, lower arms, the wrists, the hands, the fingertips, relax the upper torso, the chest, the lungs, the heart. See the lungs filling up with air and emptying. Like a big bellows. Not a me, not a mine, not an us, not a them. It's just this bellows arising with air and emptying of air. It's this natural process of breathing. In breath, filling up with the present. Out breath, emptying of the present. Even just awareness of just as an in breath, just as an out breath, is enough. Wherever it makes the mind comfortable, snug, like a bird snug in the nest, it can weather any storm. Relax the middle of the torso, solar plexus and the diaphragm, the lower part of the ribcage, down to the the belly region, the abdomen, the lower back, into the spine, checking the spine is balanced and relaxed, in a natural position. The center of the spine, relaxed. The whole torso, the whole waist, the weight of the body onto the seat, relaxed. Relax the thighs, all of the thighs down to the bone, the bone centre. Relax the knees to the centre of the knees, all the various components and liquids, ease and motion. Relax the lower legs from the centre to the surface, the ankles and the feet. Tops of the feet, the sides of the feet, the bottom of the feet, back of the heels, 
inside the field in the terrace. Hold of the feet. Hold of the lower part of the body. Up to the torso. The whole of the body. Tranquil and at ease. what Ted said, maybe one way of meditating sometimes is just to see the body, just, just as a bundle of elements, just as a mass. Because when we see that, like that, there's no labels there, there's no story there, it's just this thing. And if it's done correctly, it's actually very peaceful. We're not caught up, we're not bound up in any stories, any labels. The body and the eyes relax. Just relax the eyes further. Eyes of wisdom, eyes of peace. I think it's in Yutinikaya where the Buddha said, relax the body, Ayapasadi, relax the eyes. And don't follow after the asavas, give up the outpost. Relaxing the body now, relax the eyes. Either we're stuck in the five hindrances, or we have the seven factors of awakening. Chakuma, the eyes, Pasadi, tranquility. Very good attention to the mind. It's like there's a train station. There's train tracks going in different directions. These are our habits and tendencies. When we're meditating, we're trying to let the train just be in the station. We don't have to go out anymore. If it goes out, we just know that it's going out. And try and give up that process. Literally giving up the outflows. Whatever's flowing outwards into the world. Give that up. Going out into sights and so forth, worrying about the body or whatever it is, memories or plans, just give it all up. We like to guide a meditation with the breath, have your own meditation object. Now's the time to bring it up. Just become aware of the in-breath and the out-breath in their natural state. Just being aware of one at a time. It's a very gentle, patient awareness. No force, no chains and shackles. Total gentleness. Like a mantra, we can use the word Buddha or a word that suits us Dhamma Sangha, for example. Now, having relaxed the body and established our meditation, now we just do our best to sustain the practice. Like a diligent apprentice. Whatever the conditions are, it's good enough. Not proud and demanding in nature. Gentle heart of metta. Accepting things as they are. In breath, we know. Out breath, we know.
relaxing, calming down, cooling off, coming out of the heat of suffering into a cool place. See if there's a sense of kamoja with the breath, a sense of very soft joy, like a sense of rejoicing, a sense of delight, just like a tiny bit, like the feeling of soft wool, feeling of soft cotton, the softness of the breath. And if we can just detect it a single percent. Inspired in the Dharma, inspired in our meditation here. What's the length of the in-breath? What's the length of the out-breath? Short or long? Just know the state of things as they are. One in-breath is the present moment. One out-breath is the present moment. of things as they are. All thoughts vanish like bubbles popping. A skilled turner working on wood. So touch the blade. There you're aware of the whole motion of the whole leg, or they're aware of the point of contact. However, their mindfulness is directed. They know what they're doing. They're attending. They're careful. They're inclining their mind to knowing what they're doing. 
like a skillful apprentice. Just have a good attitude, a good heart. Doesn't matter about any difficulties or perceived problems. And just let them all go. Attitude and willingness to try. fine print with the magnifying glass moving across the page. You see the detail. Sustaining this feeling of commotion, joyfulness. Joyful ease with the in-breath, joyful ease with the out-breath. From that familiar, from that silence of delight, comes tranquility suffuse the whole of the in-breath body with tranquility, the whole of the out-breath body with tranquility, with this serene peace, this sublime, tranquil heart felt in the in-breath, felt in the out-breath. of all bodily volition, all tendencies towards action. Delighting in the peace of the breath. Focus on tranquility or joy or peace with the breath. And just let it unfold naturally. We sustain a good quality. We keep this bird snug in the nest. Keep our faculties well balanced. Delightful in breath, delightful out breath. Just do our best to sustain the meditation in the last several minutes.
see how the mind is, how our meditation, those who it's just enter for a little bit of metta, those who are in peace, stay in peace. Like repeat inside, may I be happy. May I be happy. May I be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May I be happy. beings above, below, and all around, near and far, lofty and low, seen and unseen. May all beings be free from difficulty, be free from ill will and affliction, be free from anxiety. May all beings maintain all beings in themselves, including this one. And just take a moment, if we haven't done it already, to just review if things work in our meditation or not, and the causes for it. skillful apprentices in our meditation. time you are in the meditation. Those who wish to just meditate peacefully during the talk are welcome to. So, without peace, how can we ever develop unshakable peace? Without peace, how can we ever develop unshakable stillness? Without peace, how are we ever going to have the strength of mind to actually fight or overcome defilements? So the Seleka Sutta, they're the 44 points of extinguishment. So the only way, even contemplating them, leads us towards enlightenment. That was the teaching that was dear to Arahant to the First Council, from my memory. And a, a mind with peace, without peace, a mind without wisdom, isn't going to want to contemplate those things. It's a jhana. Jhana is in all religions. That's why, the, that's why we have right samadhi and wrong samadhi. Wrong samadhi doesn't have the Eightfold Path, it doesn't have faith in the Buddha, it doesn't have the correct understanding. The right samadhi is based on all of the parts of the Eightfold Path correctly, all the way from right view right up to right samadhi. It needs all of those eight factors. And the Buddha simile was like a charioteer, a masterful charioteer would get on the horse and chariots 
he would ride up to the next chariot, like relay, and then get on the next one and ride to the next one. Because the horses and the chariots might get worn out or damaged. And so you have this relay of eight different chariots for the charioteer to ride. And when it got up to the end, it would come back to the beginning again. And then this is like us with the Eightfold Path. Again and again we have to develop right view, uh, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. And the only way we can develop these right things is if we have right view. So we develop peace, but the peace has to be based on wisdom. And this is why whether we develop samatha and then vipassana, whether we develop calm and then insight, or whether we develop insight and calm, or we develop them both together, or through agitation we find release. They were the four paths that Venerable Ananda said after the after Lord Buddha died when he would ask how people practice. But the thing is we can never know looking at another person, what they're doing in their mind. Not easily, not unless we have that ability. But the idea is, the practice occurs in the mind. So we know ourselves what we're doing with our mind. We know ourselves what we're doing with the moments of consciousness that we have and what our own ability is. And so it's starting to practice within that ability to our capacity, where we're not stretching ourselves and we're not falling into a heap in laziness. You know, we're finding this middle balance, where, like the simile to Sona, where the, the melody is of the lute. Sona used to play a lute, and he was striving too high. And so the Buddha saw this, he was about to give up his practice, and he came to him with psychic powers and said, gave him the simile of the lute, and saying, what you need to do, Sona, basically, this is where he said this, what you need to do, Sona, is harmonize your forces. So it's like the simile of a lute. So it's not too high and it's not too low. And just like when you hear a skillful lute player play the music of a lute, that sound on the ear is beautiful for one who's listening to that. And so this is, even though as monks we don't listen to music, the Buddha gave this simile to Sona because it suited his temperament. He used to play the lute from my memory. And so that idea of finding a teaching that suited him, that showed him how he needed to harmonize, because if you just played high notes all the time, or, or you just played awkwardly all the time, it's like listening to somebody learning the violin. <laughs> it's not very pleasant. <laughs> or, or the opposite is, you know, if it's too harsh or the strings... I think it may have been to do with the strings. So if the strings are too tight or the strings are too loose, the instrument will not play. And so the idea is, without knowing the correct uh, ability and effort, we won't know how to apply ourselves. So some people go too high, some people go too low. Most of it's yo-yo between the two of them. And so the question is, how do we balance our forces? How do we come to steady practice, as Dung said it. And the only way we come to steady practice is by determining to practice, by building up our truthfulness and our determination. Because truthfulness is the supreme teaching. Like Lumpur Tui, who one of the, the great Ajahns are going to Thailand to see, and hopefully live under even, he said, be true to truth. And those words made him chuckle. You know, that suited his mind when he said them, because it's, it's such a powerful statement that this idea of being true to truthfulness, if we're a true person in everything that we do, like a true lay person or a true bhikkhu or whatever our station of existence is, and that's what the practice is. We're not going to stray if we're true to truth in everything that we do. And, and having this heart that's based on virtue, that's based on generosity, it's based on truthfulness. And it doesn't matter, you know, if our nose and our limbs get chopped off. It doesn't matter if the world's going to blow up tomorrow because we're being true to truth. Our purpose and our resolve in life is set. External conditions are just external conditions. They're like that bird that's snug in the nest. And so we have the ability to focus 
are what's truly important. And sure, the bird might fly out of the nest every now and then, but because we've made a good home for that nest, we know how to clean that nest. And so the, the bird's going to come back to that nest because it's a clean place. It's the bird's home. You know, it's made a nest there. It knows where the tree is, it knows where the location is, and it doesn't crap in its own nest. It cleans the nest. And so this is like our meditation. This is like when we sweep or clean a monastery. The purpose of cleaning a monastery, it has to be done every day. It's like the mind. We have to clean the mind every day. And it's just like the spiders. You know, every week you've got to take down the spiders and then they build their webs again. If you don't take down the spider webs, then the spiders get lazy. <laughs> so you're helping the spiders develop diligent. Or, or the old Thai... <laughs> Uh, the old Thai uh, analogy of the ant, be as diligent as an ant. But we need to know what to be diligent in, because if we're diligent in worldliness, if we're diligent in our desire for the external sense world, then that won't lead to any peace, that will just lead to more agitation. And Lord Buddha said, there's many people running up and down this side of the shore, few travel to the other side. So we have to have a purpose and an intention of why we're practicing and what we're doing. And it's through that purpose and that intention that then we do build up our truthfulness. Because when we make those sila, those for lay people with five precepts or for pickers 227 precepts, when we make them things that we would rather die than brave, that's when our mind starts to get really supreme power. And, and that's when the defilements start to get frightened as... Uh, Ajahn Tempidon would say, this idea that we have to practice to the point where we become start to become invincible in our practice. And this is what it means to actually take these things into our heart. It's what it means to die for the practice, to die before you die. It means that you're willing to give up your life for these things, that they're not just taken lightheartedly. Because we can't take this practice lightheartedly. Because one day we are going to die, and when we look back at our life, and we see the opportunities we had, what are we going to think of our effort? What are we going to think of our resolve? But it doesn't mean, like the simile of a sonar, it doesn't mean we need to aim too high, and it doesn't mean we should aim too low, but we should find what is the middle way for us. Like, I think it was Ajahn Tampudon said, and Ajahn Chah, that you don't, you don't copy, you don't mimic, you're not like the crab, the, the baby crab that mimics the mother with a broken leg and so the baby crab's got a, a limp because it's over-mimicked its mother. You know, so, so we don't want to mimic the other beings. We want to take what is there and then actually practice to our own ability. And so that's a difficult thing. So we emulate, we don't imitate. And, and as one of the great teachers said, and so this idea of finding what is right for us, and like I, I was talking with Stephen the other day, when, when Stephen was reminding me, of course the most important thing is having a routine, because when we have a routine, then we know what we're actually doing with our time, because otherwise the days and nights would just relentlessly pass by. And, and, and where, where is our time spent on developing spirituality? Where is our moments of peace, our moments of consciousness focused on peace? And so we have this whole raft of Dharma that's taking us in the right direction. Because we know that if, if we don't get to sit or walk in meditation or whatever we do, then that, that or chant or, or do our bhavana, recollection of the Buddha or whatever our our practice is, when we don't get to do that for some reason, then we say, you know, when am I going to sit, when am I going to walk, when am I going to chant, like these things are that important to us that they're on our mind. And that shows us that we have real energy in our practice and we're going in the right direction, that it has something of importance to us. And, and when we have this kind of thing in our heart, then when difficulties come, we just see it's just the body, it's just the world, these difficulties they're nothing really. They're just like blimps of the heart. The heart. When you see the heart machine, it's just a little blimp on the heart machine. That's all it is. It's nothing whether whether the heart is calm or it's got a big pulse. It's just the world. Whatever it is, that's just an external condition. 
Now obviously we need to know how to take care of us in ourselves in difficult situations, so we change to adapt to the situation. But this is just still that simile of Sona's loop, where we know how to harmonize the music of our practice. So all the forces come together in a beautiful way. And this is making the practice beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end, good, good and elegant and well balanced. And so we have this harmony of the forces. And then it's like a garden of Dhamma in the heart. And so this idea that no matter what difficulties we face, because we have our aspirations, because we have our goals, because we have our truthfulness, because we are being true to truth, then it doesn't matter what others can do, it doesn't matter what others say, it doesn't matter what others think, it doesn't matter what our own mind thinks that we know this determination, we know this understanding in our own heart is higher than any of these external things. We have sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thought, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. We have been caught up in humans, been caught up in heavenly beings, inwardly conceited and rotten. We have all these, the simile of the great love goes through all the various things that can stop us from get going out to the great ocean of Nibbana. And so any of the things can caught on high ground is conceit, but lately I've been using the word vanity, these kind of vain thoughts that arise in the mind. <laughs> but what we want is veins and arteries of peace, veins and arteries of equanimity. We, we, we want for humility and peace in our hearts because the worldly desires, they never end. They're just another fire that consumes and burns or smoulders so it's hard to detect because we get caught up and infatuated in them. So like Ajahn Sampop said, his word for, for raga, I think, was infatuation, which I've never heard anybody else use before, but I think it's a very good word because raga means both lust and passion. But the word infatuation really covers both of them, so it may actually be a very good word for raga. And so this idea that we're giving up infatuation of the heart, infatuation in sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts in the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and various kinds of birth and various kinds of realms. This means that we're relinquishing, because then when we practice the recollections, like the qualities of the Buddha and the Dharma and these things, and they're like lights in our heart. This is the word island, another word for island, Meaning is actually light. Meaning, I think, sometimes when I see the Pali language, I think that the language is amazing in its levels, that the dual meanings and words are just so amazing that they happen to be there. But even though that may not be the meaning in that context, it's true that when, that when you practice with an island in your heart, it is also a light. You have a light of Dhamma in your heart. And what is the light of Dhamma? It's the mirror of Dhamma. And so we practice to be like the cool full moon reflecting the sun. So if you think of a tree, and the tree is like, you can see the trunk and the branches and the leaves. And so the trunk and the branches and the leaves are like the Buddha is, and the Dhamma are like the trunk. And the branches and leaves are like the Sangha, the community growing out of the Buddha. But underneath that, trunk is all the great root system. So for the size of that trunk that we can see in all of the Sangha, that's still the Buddha and the Dhamma. So that's the Buddha and the Dhamma that we don't see. That's all the work that Lord Buddha put in to become the Buddha and everything that grew out of him. And so, so this is why the Buddha's, one of the Buddha's epithets is kinsman of the sun, because he's literally the brother of the sun. There's no other way to explain the magnificence of a Buddha because it's just like a tree it grows towards the light. So we're trying to be like a tree that grows towards the light. And, and that's, that's, that's what being true to truth is. It's just being this tree that wants to grow towards the light. And, and the, back to the reflection of... So the full moon reflects the sun. It's just this rock in the sky, but because it's a mirror, it reflects the sun and it becomes beautiful. So when we contemplate this body, when we contemplate the breath, when we have mindfulness of the body, 
This is how we beautify our mind. This is how we develop mindfulness. This is how we develop the, mind, the mirror of Dhamma in the heart. And the Buddha said, mindfulness of the body is supreme. And once we have a, truly have a mirror in the heart, that's when the Buddha said a being is a sotapanna. They've entered the stream. When, when one sees Nibbana in the distance, an actual experience, who sees the doors of the deathbed. And this is as in the suttas and explained by Lung Te and Tenganjanadang. And so these kind of things are the tangible, the things to be experienced for ourselves, each one. This is individually by the wise, is what it means. And, and so if we want to be wise, then this, these have to be goals, these have to be aspirations, these have to be things in our truthfulness and our determination that we're trying to move for. And like Lung Po Cha said, whether one life or ten thousand lives, may I see the Dhamma. But may I do it the way the Lord Buddha said, and not otherwise, because that's how we truly give up to the Dhamma. And so this, this talk on, on difficulty and peace and growing in good ways is, is just to help us gauge where we are in our own hearts. So we have this simile of Sona, that we're not practicing for anybody else. Like by practicing for ourselves, self-guarding, self-protecting, like I was saying, I think last week, the simile of the acrobat. So they have the bamboo pole and the simile of the acrobat. Self-guarding, self-protecting, they look after themselves and then they get down safely. And so by self-guarding and self-protecting, what we're actually talking about is the four foundations of mindfulness. So once all the other factors are in place, once everything is good and focused on, then all we're doing is developing the four foundations of mindfulness. And if people worry about the world, well, anybody who practices the four foundations of mindfulness is helping bring the Dharma back into the world. So rather than worry about what's going on in the world, why not do something that's actually good and worthwhile? And so it's actually just in the Samyutanikaya, just after the simile of the acrobat, it mentions that, that this, these four foundations of mindfulness bring the Dharma back into the world. And if anybody doesn't know about Dharma coming back into the world, then go and study the King Ashokan Edicts and see what one king did by teaching the people to be good. And so this idea that we can practice for somebody else, or that we should get upset about what's going on in the world, or we should even get upset at ourselves. I mean, there's a time to reprove ourselves, and there's a time to encourage ourselves. It's just like a child. You can't always tell a child off, and you can't always tell a child that they're good. <laughs> that would be a disaster as well, <laughs> because you'd end up with a demon child on your head. <laughs> So uh, this idea that we have to learn to be our own teacher, this is what it is when we take the Dharma into our heart, that we're not relying on external forces, that we make this Dharma, these teachings, and then we see into cause and effect in our own heart. So, so even though we may have excellent qualities and we act in line with Dharma, it comes out of Hetu Pachayan, it comes out of this looking into reason, causes and effect. And, and some people are faith characters, so they more go along the faith way, but in the end, we all come back to this reason, cause and effect. And, and so this idea that then whatever tendencies we have, we just use that simile of the loot given to Sona. And he was the most energetic of the Lord Buddha's disciples. He was striving far too hard. And so and the moment he had the thought of leaving the Sangha, the Buddha came out of compassion to teach him, just just to practice in the right way. And so this is just a teaching just to see how we can practice in the right way, looking into our hearts. So that's the Dhamma talk. Okay, we're in with the chant. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue 
my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest hearts and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Yata varivaha pura pariparanti sagarang evangi vaito dinang petanang upakapati titang patitang tong hanke pamewa samijitu sebeparantu sangapa chandu panara so yata manijoti raso yata sabiti yoga chandu Sāru kūhinā sattu māte pāvātvāntarāyo sukhīti kāyuko pāvābhīvā tānāsīlī sanicchāṁ vūtā pājāyinu chātāro Thank you.